Hi, this is Randy Backman from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcasts presents... From Hollywood, California... Art of Rock with Caution Friends. A Pantheon podcast. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. Greetings all, you are listening to The Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. My name is Kosh, and I'm behind the mic at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood. First, just a bit of news. We are now available on SpotifyRadio.com and most recently Pandora. In fact, if you search, you can find us on about 40 different podcast distribution platforms these days. We are growing and growing. All of us at Pantheon Podcast love telling the stories about the great moments of rock and roll. Whatever your taste in music, there is something for everyone. Find it all online at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts. Expect new announcements here at the top of every new Art of Rock show. Finally, and this is the one that matters most of us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about Pantheon Podcasts. Thank you. Let's get to the show and meet today's guest. That's what you are Unforgettable Though near or far Like a song of love This is Kosh. You know, the art director of many of the classic albums in your collection, coming to you from the couch in the main studio at Aftermaster Studios. We are located within the golden triangle of the famous audio studios in Hollywood. However, the most prestigious and progressive is Aftermaster Studios. I am privileged to be sitting on the aforementioned couch with Pete Dell, the revered veteran of audio recording and mastering. He is the recipient of five Grammy nominations and two Emmy Awards for music and television. He has mastered over 500 album releases, recorded and mixed hundreds more. His clients include Capitol Records, Motown, Universal Records, Quincy Jones and Henry Mancini Archives. This guy has worked with and brought to you the great recordings of Frank Sinatra, Miles Davis, Ray Charles, Elmer Bernstein, The Stray Cats, Take a Breath, Mary J. Blige, Leonard Skinner, Chuck Berry, Dwight Yoakam, Sheryl Crow, Toto, Marilyn Manson, Imagine Dragons, oh stop. The list goes on. Now you need to listen to our chat from the couch at Aftermaster Studios in the recording capital of the world, Hollywood.
Pete, I want to welcome you to the couch at Aftermaster Studios. Your legend precedes you, and I want you <laughs> to, I want you to explain to me how you got into this racket. Sorry, business. Um, and how you've enjoyed yourself forthwith and all the illustrious clients with whom you have worked. So I don't know where to start. Do I start at Capital? Where do I start? Well, I actually came to the recording world from having been a, a musician, a performer, and then uh, when I was a when I was a wee sprat, <laughs> uh, my brother uh, was a a hi-fi enthusiast, and I'm talking back in the fifties. Oh, really? Sixties. Oh, were those big we were, electrostatic speakers yeah, and things? Yeah, not electrostatic, and that was a little bit too pricey for oh. us. But uh, oh. we built tube amplifiers and receivers, and built. Uh, you know, big uh, coaxial speaker cabinets with 50 pounds of sand. Oh, it's the cement. Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, so, you know, when I was playing... Um, but in glorious mono at this point? Are we now in it, stereo? Absolutely. No, it was, it was probably glorious mono. Mm -hmm. And then into stereo. But when I uh, got into playing music, I, you know, picked up the guitar uh, pre-Beatles, I might add. Oh. I, my first... Uh, Guitar inspiration was probably the Ventures. Oh, see, you know I the was, Ventures. Yes, of course I do. Okay, and yeah, but I was doing Buddy Holly at the time, but you know. Oh yes, but not very yes. well, of course. Speaking of Buddy Holly, <laughs> my dad thought you know because I had a, a band with a, several guys like myself wearing glasses, and he said you should call yourself the Spectacles. Oh, oh it's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, dad, that's too cornball, but but good. Keep it to yourself for your solo record, right? Okay, I dad. like it. <laughs> But, uh, you know, getting into electronics was a help. Uh, mm. You could repair your, your bass amp. Yes. I, I started on guitar, but quickly moved to bass because it mm. seemed... Uh, oh, my favorite. Yeah. It, well, it seemed that, like, you could sit home and oh, never work oh, again, oh, or you could play oh, the oh, bass and yeah. you, could you could be working all the time, which mm. uh, I found myself working all the time. It was great. Um, but when I got to college, although I started off in a, in a science program, Believe it or not, I wanted to be in the medical program. Oh, you did? So I started in pre-med, but I had a band. And then one day I was in the music building, and the store opened. And which college are you in? Tell me. Uh, State University of New York at Albany. The Albany, the okay, the capital. The capital of yes. New York State. Yeah, right. And uh, this was the only place, uh, I guess, in the country at that point. This is, you know, 50 freaking years ago already. Um, I'm terrible with ouch, to say these oh numbers, where uh, you could get an actual uh, bachelor's degree in electronic music composition. Oh, okay. Right, we had the biggest Moog facility. Anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of oh, myself. Oh, Moogs, okay. Yeah, got it. But um, I was I was in a band, and I was in the music building this one day, and these uh, the door opened, and I see all these multi-track Scully tape machines. Uh. This is like 1969. Excuse me. What class do I need to take to get in that room? Yeah, because I already knew I, from like my experience with uh, you know building electronic amplifiers and and all that kind of good stuff, I was very interested in uh, learning how to record because it had it occurred to me that you know if you understood the medium, you could actually have a hit record, even if you didn't have, you know, the best. Uh, singer or the, oh. maybe even the best song if you knew how to make a great sounding Sound. thing you know, like a clever innovative kind of thing so that that had kind of gripped me by the, the short hairs oh. as someone once said uh, so when I had taken that complete left and got into the the music program uh, when I graduated all bets were off I ended up uh, shortly after moving to Boston 
to pursue a music career where I was playing music at night and working in recording studios by day and kind of got a, a, a good combo platter of, of experience. And I was there through, through most of the 70s. I lived in Boston doing basically that. By night, I was playing in clubs and mm. bars and doing the occasional sessions. I, I did actually have a, a client who, after Arthur Fiedler, do you know that yes, name at yes. all? Okay, well, Arthur Fiedler had been the con- conductor of the Boston Pops oh, yeah. for a number of years, and we did a lot of recording with the Pops. And uh, we also did a, a TV show called uh, Zoom and the Electric Company, both of which were kids' shows for Case. Uh, yeah, Case. No. No, it can't be Kate. WGBH. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the Boston oh, yeah. station. Grievous Bodily Harm. WGBH. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and so when Fiedler uh, passed the baton mm. uh, before John Williams took over, uh, one of my clients was a, a guest conductor for a number of times on the on the podium there at uh, Symphony Hall, and I got to play with the Pops a number of oh, times, wow. and that was my fun. Oh, God. It was all sorts of good fun there, uh, but in 1980, I decided that I'd had my fill of Boston and the opportunities there, and moved out here. And I wasn't certain which of my two sort of skills, you know, recording or uh, or bass playing, would take off. And I was really fortunate that uh, almost well, I'd only been here a few months, and I was playing gigs right away. But uh, I met some guys who had a band that were songwriters and they were doing demos with the singer's husband at this place called Wally Hyders. Oh, yeah, right. Just up the street from where we are right now. That's correct. And it was a world-renowned place. Wally made his sort of mark in the recording world. I think probably the... the, Well, maybe the first one was uh, Johnny Rivers. Oh, really? But Frampton Comes Alive. We just saw Frampton yes, a couple that, okay, last that week. Yes, the mobile. Well, that was the whole point of it. Exactly. Yeah. They, yeah, right. he, yeah. he showed them that, you know, if you wheel a truck up to a venue and... And plug it in. And, <laughs> and those guys are, like, cranking it out. You could make, you know, a million-selling record by recording one, maybe two nights, as opposed mm-hmm. to underwriting a, a band going in for months in the studio. Mm. So the record company said... Hmm, well, you're on to something there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the very first things I got to do was uh, record a bunch of uh, nights at uh, the comedy store. Oh, okay. And uh, probably the, the most fun thing I got to do in the first couple of weeks or months there was we recorded the USC marching band for Tusk, the, the, the oh, Fleetwood yeah, Mac Fleetwood Mac, yeah, yeah, right, right. I think it was Tusk, wasn't it? Or yes. Rumors? Tusk. Yeah. No, it wasn't Rumors. I worked on Rumors. Yeah. Well, they said you know, not very much on it, but it's my but, studio. But, anyway. but it was it was a, a, a fun place. Hiders yeah. did movie scoring. They did episodic TV stuff. They did frontline records, you know. Uh, and one of the very first records I got to assist on was an Eddie Money album that had legendary Tom Dowd. Oh, yes, right. Legendary Andy Johns. Yes. Engineering. And this was that era where people would be in the studio for months. Mm. You know, they'd write the material in front of you in the studio. And budgets were big and And spirits were high, as were the players. Well, because profits were huge as well. So, I mean, (laughs) budgets actually were not really considered very much. You know, as they are now, you know. Right. Oh, God, uh, yes. It was like, you know, well, they're going to make $60 million out of this, so what's another ten grand? you know? Yeah, right. 
but uh, it was it was definitely a furtive time that I moved out here. Um, I I do remember um, actually when I first arrived in the spring of 1980, there was a big musician strike. Yes, I so you know you'd play a stupid gig and you'd find Shelly Mann and oh. Lee Rittenauer and all these you know big name players, you know just. Trying to pay the bills like you yeah, were. Yeah, right. We all had to pay the mortgage. Yeah. It, it was uh, an interesting time. But it's. Uh, I've been very fortunate. And after I got my very first job at Wally Hyders, uh, I shortly went off to uh, Sunset Sound. And then Across direct- the street again. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I, from 83 to 99, I worked at Capitol Records in the recording mm. studios there. Which so were- you're in the Golden Triangle. There's the well. There, That's what we use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's quite a, a an attrition of recording studios now. But then, True. I mean, yes. my God, there was probably two hundred within a five block radius. Yes, exactly. You know, it was yes. insane. How wonderful uh, and uh, uh, fertile uh, a playground of of musicians, and that was great. I mean, it was great working at a place where, you know, the halls would be filled with musicians, and you know, you could get so and so. Um, at Sunset Sound or, or mm-hmm. at Capitol, you know, somebody else in the, the adjacent studio and say, hey, bring that, come, would you consider playing a solo on right. this song for us? And, you know. And it stretched all the way out west of Village Recorders. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. really not that many on this on the west side except Village. There yeah. used to be uh, the Complex, which George Madison Oh, yes, I remember had. that. Yeah. That was a great place. Yeah. And that's now, I think it's Phono Visa. Or, oh, really? Yeah, the yeah. TV studio. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Hollywood is still the hotbed. A lot of it is sprawled Well, that's what got me here, you know. I mean, apart from the fact my clients were disappearing from the UK in oh, droves <laughs> to record yeah, here yeah, yeah. and then staying here because the weather's so much better. Amen. <laughs> apart from today. Amen, yeah. It's so, a- yeah, it was, it was a total magnet for me. And also the West Coast artists were out here too. So it was like, at this point, I think L.A. and Hollywood was just like a big big draw you know and and Absolutely. of course all the people you're bumping into and working with all become friends and it's, it's really great you know i you know i i have to admit uh, i i was probably here 10 years or something before i met my first native los angelino yeah, right. everybody was a transplant and <laughs> like to myself you know it was like man if i grew up where the weather was this nice i don't know what would have become of me no, I see. You know, because I grew up in Rochester, New York. Where Which the, it can be very chilly. Where the joke <laughs> is that there are only three seasons, June, July, and winter. Those are the three seasons. And because of that, but you know. Kodak you, country, yes. Absolutely. But because of the cold, you stayed inside and practiced, uh, you know. You really you got craft. your craft together got because yeah. you were going to freeze your tuchus off if you were outside yeah. most of the year. Uh, which you could say. But the transition of uh, coming to, you know, the laid-back West Coast, um, how did that sort of affect your musicianship? Well, I mean, when I first arrived, you know, you try to... Because I was was used to working with really good musicians, accomplished musicians, and uh, getting, strangely enough, paid. Ah, how how, (laughs) how unusual. (laughs) It it was a concept that was sort of foreign to a lot of the people that... uh, (laughs) I, I came out here and, and met through the union, say, and, you know, like people mm. who were aspiring to put a band together and get a record deal, mm. which was, you know, the the big brass ring back in those days. Unlike now, nobody really cares about a record deal because the record companies don't really 
control things like no. they once did. No. But, uh, you know, people would have a day job so that they could, you know, practice at night. Oh, night, and it's probably, like, yes, No, right. no, no, no. You got that bass backwards. Yes. I, I'll have a, a, a day job so that it, I can, you know, or I'll rehearse during the day so I can play at night. Nah. With, or, you know, earn a living with my bass strapped over my, mm-hmm. my shoulder. As that, opposed to laundromat. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to work at Sears and practice <laughs> your songs at night. That's crazy. <laughs> and uh, now that we're talking about money, I remember one of the the names that you'd probably recognize is Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, of course. Yes, you know, yes, yes. I mean, his material is clever lyrically, but, but musically it's, you know, it's, it's top more, well, it's top 40. It's just cover <laughs> yes, tunes, right? right? Yes. And, you but know, it's funny. I, but I auditioned with him, and I had the audacity to ask, "Well, what's what's the pay situation?" Mm. Well, you know, it's like you should be thrilled just you to be work honored. with him. Yes, right. I've had like, no, 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 before. No. Yes. This is like the music is crap. You know, I mean, I'm not getting any. I'm not getting Woody uh, by playing this material. Uh, it would be nice to have some compensation. Yes, you know? right. And there were. There were a lot of clubs. I don't know if it's still the same now, but you know where you had to pay to play. Well, yes, I do know that. Yeah, which is, you had to, you had to which is where the, the phrase PA. comes from. Yes. Yeah, right. You had to rent the PA, guarantee mm. so many of your friends would come in and drink and all that. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm trying to earn a living over yeah, here. Right. So it, well, was, it was it was considered an honor to play at the Troupe. Yeah. Well, places that Roxy, actually had yeah. you know clientele that uh, could actually do something for you, you uh-huh. know, like where they had uh, sort of uh, music industry folks who would wander through with some regularity. That would be a little bit of enticement, mm. but just to play mm. a toilet. <laughs> and some, you know, and like, some of the I'd toilets rather, were disgusting. Though. Yeah, I'd rather <laughs> stay home. So anyway, what i got to do, I've got to steer you in a direction now. Yes, please. Because I want to talk to you very, very um, in depth about the capital years and the great, you know, Miles Davis, Eddie Money, all the people that you work with and um, the uh, your approach and the sort of reactions that you had uh, with um, your clientele, who apparently seemed to be more than clients. They seemed to be people you could sort of bounce back and forward. I mean, you've mentioned Tom Dowd, who's a great little guy. Oh, fantastic um, man. And it's saved me an embarrassing situation with Rod Stewart because he got between us when we were going to have a fight. I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah, because Rob, <laughs> Rob was buff, you know, and he could have just broken my jaw, but Tom got in the way um, and sort of put us apart, and the language got really atrocious. I can't even use it. It's just, wow. Yeah, uh, you know, and, uh, C word and things were flying around. <laughs> uh, but little Tom Dow was just like sort of... <laughs> Scrappy Too little fucker. <laughs> Too funny. Anyway, no, so I need to know how you worked with people like Tom Dow and how how did you work with, like, Miles Davis? Because he's not the easiest person, was well, not the easiest person in the world. Well, with. maybe we should take him in historical sequence. Okay, Because I, yes, yes. I worked with Tom, and like you say, he was not only a gentleman, but he was the most democratic producer you, you'd ever want to be around i mean he was just so fantastic uh with people mm. as well as technology and and music for god's sakes mm. but i remember oh, you did aretha franklin and da, 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 da. oh yeah exactly and like I, I had intimated i just moved here from boston and and had worked on a lot of jazz and had played a bunch of jazz and whatnot and, and tom only had done two john coltrane records but which two yes giant steps and the law supreme <laughs> arguably 
maybe the two biggest Best. jazz records of all time. Yeah. You know, I mean, just ridiculous. And I remember asking him a little bit about those recordings. And, and you know, back then we would, we would edit a lot of the performances on tape. With a razor uh, blade. With a razor blade, but, but he was used to doing it with, with scissors. Oh. And was talking about with, how with Coltrane, Coltrane would say, man, you know, I really wish I'd played this phrase over here and this idea over there. And, oh, and Tom would move it, it around. Get scissors and, out. Yeah, but in other words, that these recordings that everybody, like, thought were just, you know, Valhalla of jazz, uh, that they were actually... Well, not necessarily contrived, a la Milli Vanilli or some you know, oh God, deceptive yes, something yeah. or other, but they were artistically created. You know, some some of it to an extent was done after the fact. It wasn't all like off. You know, wasn't totally improvised the way one would think of with the jazz record, right? And I, I said to Tom, I said, man, I know lots of guys back in Boston who would slit their frickin' throats to hear you say that. Mm. You know, that this was, you know, we, we improved the performance. We improved and, the improvisation. And, and, and improved, yes. the, you know, the, the arc of the composition. But I just have this image the of, of snipping, you know, this two-inch sort of Ampex tape with scissors. Well, you probably didn't do the use of scissors oh, oh. on two-inch. <laughs> but I always ask them, like, if you're cutting all this stuff together, how, how would you make sure the angle... Was the same. Oh, the, the, the oblique and, angle. Yes. Yeah, he said you'd turn your wrist over all the way until it couldn't go any further, and that was your standard cut. So Good that God. would be fixed. That's In other amazing. words, if, if you did it like this, there's so much wiggle room that, <laughs> yes. you know, I'm, and so I wish for your listeners who can't see me, see me but, <laughs> but if, you, if you're using your right hand and you turn it all the way Wait, counterclockwise, right, okay, I'm done following you, yeah. That you're going to find a spot where it's locked and yes. that's the angle that you use and each and every time and then, then you have the consistency <gasps> okay, that's amazing. for each, each cut and then you know that, uh, you know, you're not just going to go, oops, there's a big gaping, you know, eighth inch gap right, in yeah. between the top and the bottom. So is this mixed down on quarter inch tape or something? Well, back, yeah, and back yeah. in this era, you know, this stuff was live. Yes, of course. was live to quarter inch tape or maybe three track, half yeah. inch tape, depending on what era. But yeah, but when I worked with them, uh, I worked with them on the Eddie Money record. I worked for a little bit on a Kenny Loggins record, and mm -hmm. there's an interesting story about that where we have been flogging the poor band together, all I'm the, trying to get a great take of the song, This Is It. Mm -hmm. At any rate, uh, so Tom got fed up with, you know, just beating a dead horse and sent them off to dinner and had me bring in a second 24 track. And he took the razor blade now mm. and he cut up these sections and he made the drum goo, ba ba doom ba you know, like with the upbeat and with yeah. the accent, with the cymbals and everything. And we literally, we cut the tape to make the drum groove. And when the band came back, I had transferred this drum groove over to a second thing and we had... The band overdub to this feel okay. that yeah. Tom had done with the razor blade. Good lord! And that's the hit record. Wow! Uh, another <laughs> that's an amazing story. Oh, Jesus. another another amazing one that uh, there's many, but the one that jumps out and I always just I'm just blown away by uh, was that we were doing rough mixes for the record label. I think this was the Eddie Money record, and he found himself in a studio at Wally Hyder's that he. Did not like the monitors. Did not like the speakers. You know, mm. and the speakers are arguably the most important tool we as engineers have because they, 
they either lie to you or they tell you the truth. Mm. So he felt they were not friendly enough for him. So to make his point, he made these rough mixes and not just one song. I mean, like a number of them probably, however we had done at that point for the label to listen to, with the speakers off. Oh, my God. Right? So we have a, a, a counter that displays how many minutes and seconds you are on the tape machine, mm -hmm. and you can reset that number. And then he had his book with a chart for each and every song with numbers above the bars. Oh, oh okay. So without hearing and just looking at the tape counter and looking at his chart, he could tell where he was within the song, right? Got it. And so... I mean, when I say it's a rough mix, I mean, I don't mean it's a static where you just set everybody at a certain level and pan it out and hit play and you're done. No. He's got vocal rise. He's got echo bombs. He's got all, you know, all this crazy stuff going on within his mix. And then you, you roll the tape back. Okay, we'll turn the speakers on and listen to it. And you're, you're just blown away wow. with not only the balance, but that he could precisely know where to ride the voice or to do the echo bomb on the guitar solo and all this, just to make a point. Mm -hmm. I don't need these damn speakers. I know where I'm at, and, you know, wow. they're supposed to work for me, but I don't trust them, so fuck them. Oh, <laughs> no, it's all right. We're live. Um, <laughs> so that was just, you know, such an eye-opener. It was so great. Well, that's but, sort of perfection. In, um, I mean, it's like Linda Ronstadt is kind of, has that sort of ability. Oh, just, really? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, she was... As I've seen her producing. I've seen her produce David Lindley and whatever else, and I've just seen her working. And, and literally, I've seen those speakers. Just not there, you know? And she's got cans on, ah. uh, you know? But she doesn't trust the speakers. Yeah. Or didn't. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there are times when that's probably the right thing to be doing. Yeah. But if you want to talk about Miles Davis, I, I certainly do. I was doing a record with the late great producer Tommy Lapuma, yes. who's just done so many spectacular records. What a sweet, ma sweet man, and we'll miss him dearly. He just passed away last. No, it's maybe two years ago. Two already. years ago. Yeah. But uh, we were working on a George Benson record, right? And yes. He says, um, "Oh yeah, on Tuesday we're going to do a date with Miles," and I'm thinking, Miles Standish. <laughs> Miles Copeland, <laughs> you can't possibly mean Miles Davis. Yeah, Miles Davis. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then. You know, oh, and I had heard that he doesn't like white people particularly. Yes, and I'm, like, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty, I've noticed I'm that. pretty yes. bloody white. Yes. Uh, especially being from Rochester, New York. That's right. At any rate, so uh, he comes in, uh, and it's just he. It, it There's no entourage or oh, really? Any, no. Uh, he was, you know were very intimidated and he, he comes in he comes into the studio and he takes off his jacket and he looks at Lapuma and myself and he goes I usually get a round of applause when I do this and I go is he serious oh. you know he's pulling our chain of course what yes, he's doing but it's funny oh. yes oh my god he was he was just a, a, an incredible incredible dream to work with probably the the high point of of working with him was uh, going out to dinner oh. with La Puma and he and uh, the stories you can imagine yes, were I just yeah. outstanding. But probably the best mistake I ever made in my life was on that record was day one. Um, 
Tommy was executive. Which, which, which record is this? Uh, the Tutu oh, album. Okay, okay. This right, is like it. his first record. And for, I have to ask you the dates now. because I'm, That was 1986, I Amir. Yeah, because I'm forever being told I didn't get dates. So well, this I'm, was okay. yeah. February, and okay. strangely <laughs> enough, of 1986. And uh, I had just come off doing a record with uh, Steve Vai and uh, David Lee Roth. Mm-hmm. And then the very next thing I'm thrown into this. Good God. That's a big switch. This is, well, this was the best thing about working at Capitol. Believe okay. me. You know, because the variety was just fantastic. You never got pigeonholed for doing just one style oh, of music. Right. It was mm-hmm. a spectacular opportunity to work there. But working with Miles, uh, Tommy LaPuma, as I say, was the executive producer, but the musical producer, if you will, was a guy named Marcus Miller, who you probably have heard of too, yeah. a spectacular musician. And he had been playing in Miles's live band for, for a while, and they had a great rapport. And we were doing this one track that one day. That was the, right. the one day that, that Tommy LaPumi said, yeah, we're going to work with him Tuesday. Okay, so on Tuesday, Marcus had a cassette. Remember cassettes? Yes, I do yeah, indeed. Okay. So he I had some one on- in my car once. <laughs> he had... A bunch more music that he wanted Miles to hear and take home a, a, a cassette of one song on this cassette, right? And, you know, I'm I'm working. I don't have an assistant. I'm trying to keep the ship afloat here, so I wasn't policing what went on with his cassette. And a whole bunch of music went on his cassette to take home that evening. Miles liked all of it, so instead of like. Just working with him on Tuesday, I got like 16 days. Good God. Because I screwed up his cassette. Oh, nice Is that not the best? <laughs> yes. Oh, seriously, that was, I mean, if you so were going to you, make, putting I got, it mildly, fucked up. But I I, I, I certainly made a, made a good thing for myself. Totally, totally. Oh, man. <laughs> That's lovely. And some of the record was done in New York, and you'd like to think. In February? I don't know. That's just going on. All right, okay. It was, uh, <laughs> But I just imagine we were in sunny California at the time. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, that, you know, the, the New York stuff happened, you know, weeks or months after the stuff that, that I got to work oh. on. Uh, and, you know, being a New York guy, you'd think that, you know, the, oh, the New York jazz stuff is going to be hipper and all that. Yes, but right. I got to say, I really think that the, uh, the L.A. stuff is arguably better. And maybe it's because it was first and mm. it was the freshest. Yeah. Uh, working... With Marcus Miller, uh, Miles would say, you know, Marcus was into the, like everything is like paper mache and everything is malleable and movable, like I was saying before right, with yeah. uh, with Coltrane and uh, which and, I didn't actually realize because the jazz is supposed to be, you know, improvised. Yeah, I didn't realize if, if you can make it better. Yes, I understand. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, obviously know, it's going to be better. <laughs> yeah. So Miles would say to man, put it wherever you want. Oh really? Yeah, and uh, so we did, we did a lot of sampling, and there were there were like the very first, probably the very first drum machine usage, maybe in jazz anyway, was on that record I would think, where there was a thing that Roger Nichols, who's a famous engineer here in town, who's unfortunately passed a number of years ago, but he did all the Steely Dan records, well, okay. maybe not all of them, but a lot mm. of them. He developed a, uh, a a drum sample machine that you could trigger externally and replace like your snare or your kick uh, or even cymbals with this thing. He had carts, so this is how arcane this thing was. Wow. But it was called Wendell and Wendell Jr. Strangely, my wife's name is Wendell. Oh, really? Oh, it's yeah. lovely. <laughs> and uh, uh, Wendell is uh, 
still around. I mean, you can still uh, hear them. But anyway, on, on uh, a number of the tracks on this Tutu album, uh, we had Marcus out there. We had the, the machine doing uh, like the kick and the snare, and mm. Marcus would be out there doing like the drag strokes. Oh. Brr, brr, you know, to make it sound like a live drummer. And everything. Right, I think and I'm you got to admit, if you go listen to that record, you, it really has a fabulous feel. It doesn't sound remotely like machines mm. at all. Oh, it's good. Some really beautiful stuff. So tell me um, about the Frank Sinatra sessions that you were. Yeah, um, Frank Sinatra was going to do what became the duets mm-hmm. records at Capitol. This is like 1991. Can I interrupt? And this is where Linda Ronstadt appeared on that album. She did a duets with, she did a duets album, and one of those was with Frank Sinatra. Yeah, there so was taken out of the session probably. I, I I don't recall that being on the the Frank record. Ah, okay. But that was the inducement, I think, for all the duet ah. people. They didn't get paid, but they got the right to use. <laughs> Their track. I could be wrong, but that no, no, was my sounds, understanding. It sounds pretty accurate. It sure does, especially with <laughs> with capital EMI being a behind yes. the purse strings, right? Yeah. But you know, this was his first record after leaving Columbia. Columbia, yeah. Uh, and you know, he had been on Reprise, and then he went to Columbia, and then well, Reprise was his own label, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, Warner Brothers made a label for uh, him. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. Or reprise, or whatever. We weren't going to pronounce it. Yes, okay. <laughs> you say tomato. I say yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so this was the first record for for Capital EMI, and you know their their concept was I know, not, let's bring uh, Frank to a, a whole new audience and actually bring some money into the picture by sell, by pairing him up with people who actually sell records. Oh, God. <laughs> you know? So, like, they, they paired them up with Bono and, um, you know, a whole bunch of people. And none of the duets did we do at Capitol. We just did Frank with the band. Okay. And because Frank, you know, wasn't going to give you oodles of, oodles of takes and he's going to sing live, um, we got Frank's rhythm section. We got Greg Fields and Chuck Berghoffer, who were his, as they say, bass and drums, uh, to to play on the recordings because we're not going to get a click track. No. Uh, and we hoped that having them who would already know the tempo that, that uh, Frank likes to do it, if we were fortunate enough to get him to do uh, a couple of takes, they would line up, hmm. you know? Uh <laughs> and in the hope, okay, so this is Phil Ramone okay. producing the record mm-hmm. and L. Schmidt engineering. So you know you got a hell of a start, yes, right? right. Yeah. And Pat Williams was the uh, arranger and conductor. And, you know, my God, I mean, so it's, uh, on our side of the glass, the, the, the talent was tantamount to the other side of the glass pretty mm-hmm. much. You know, those guys were just the top of their game. Uh, so... In the hope of getting the ability to control what you got, because you weren't going to get a lot of takes out of Frank, we built a hut, (laughs) which had a big tether with air conditioning and glass on all sides, and so we could put him in the middle of the orchestra, and he could see and be seen, but we would have his sound isolated, so we could mix and match takes, hopefully, Mm -hmm. you know, if we got the great take from the band that we could, you know, take. So anyway... (laughs) The first night, uh, seven o'clock, Don beat with the band, and 
so we got the band ahead early, you know, and got everybody in their places. And, you know, we had tested all the mics and we were all ready to rock, you know, all the headphones, all the, everything was, all the T's were crosses and crossed and the I's were dotted and everything for Frank. And now Frank shows up and he comes down the hall, the studio A, and you know, there, down there's, long corridor. There, there, yeah, there's literally, you know, like 70 musicians in their oh, seats and a, and a whole bunch of people in the halls and control room, you know, the support crew and everything. And he, and he says, why am I here? Like, I, I've i sung all these before because he sees the season music. Yes, right. And we're all thinking, what the hell is going to happen now, you know? Uh, Phil, you better go out there and talk to him. <laughs> you know, put out this fire like now, because you know I think Frank was seventy-seven at that yes. point. And I hate hate to impugn a number that I'm going to reach not too not yeah. too far away, well, right? Me. You know? <laughs> but uh, he was he was a confused lad at that point. Uh, well, he pretty... he he would go in and out. I would have to say. Vocally, he, he he was pretty strong still, but well, he had that phrasing thing going. Always, on, right? yeah, yeah. But anyway, so there was this potential landmine here in, in front of Phil Ramone. <laughs> I'm like, what are, is this going to fall apart before we even start? Hmm. And you know, Phil explains, well, yeah, you've done it before, but not for capital M E M I. That's what, uh, why we're here, and blah blah blah. So anyway, it it kind of fizzled, and Frank left. Oh no! That first night. So we're not sending the band home. So we rehearse all the uh, all the arrangements with mm. the band. We're recording everything, and, and the band is just ridiculous, mm. right? And uh, I can't remember the the song, but there was one song that uh, Tom Scott played this spectacular solo on. And <laughs> when the record comes out, it ain't Tom Scott; it's Kenny G. Oh no! Yeah. Because the record company said, well, Kenny G will sell some records. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is there was that, those type of decisions. And so, at any rate, we, re- we recorded all this, all these numbers with the band. And the hope was that the next day, instead of the 7 p.m. downbeat with the band, we would get Frank to come in in the afternoon and overdub uh-huh. his voice to the tracks we cut in his absence mm. that evening. So we got him in the booth. I mean, the, you know, the big the, the air-conditioned hut, yes, right? right? The <laughs> box in the middle of the band. And he's got a teleprompter. And if, if I do I use the printed music or do I use the teleprompter? If I use the teleprompter, is it white on black or is it black on white, okay. right? And do I use single-sided headphones or, or duels? And which of these four or five mics, you know, these $20,000 each vintage, <laughs> ridiculous, wonderful <laughs> mics and all this. So... You know, Frank. Frank lets you know pretty quick when he once we figured out what we were going to use mm. and all that. You could tell he it was really uninspired, right? Uh, yeah. You could tell he's telling you, "I don't fucking want to do this." Uh, you know, overdub. Uh, I, this is not what I signed up for, right? So we we get him to overdub on, you know, summer all I don't remember, and then at seven o'clock the band starts showing. Well, well, before seven, the the band starts showing up. And, you know, he, he goes out and, you know, a lot of these guys know him and, you know, everybody's sucking up to him and everything. And he says, well, I can't be in there. Meaning the booth, the booth that we, the he's been booth, in yeah. all afternoon that yeah. we're, we're turning over is a black and white, is it the singles or the duels yeah, or what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all these rocks we've been turning over. No, no, no. I got to be out here with the band. So what do we end up using? A handheld wireless no, SM87 <laughs> with floor wedges 
right next to the pianist, Bill Miller, who had been his accompanist yeah, for right. you know, 40, 50 years or whatever. Uh, and that's the record. Good God. Right? Wow. Uh, but the other performers but, had to but, phone yeah, their stuff in, right? Well, point. we did it over Ednet. Do you know what Ednet is? No, for your, uh, it, It's a fiber optic network. Oh, okay. And this is, again, you know, with the internet uh, being in its infancy, or even, I don't know, if in 91 we even really had the internet yet. I don't think, well, maybe we did. But anyway, it was fiber optics, and we could do remote recording. Oh. You know? And at any rate, so during the recording, if we didn't get a good line from Frank... I guess that's what the overdub artists, the yeah. duet artists will duet have to artists sing. would do. You know, because they didn't know who was going to be the duet artist on any of these songs oh, yet. Oh, this hasn't been... Oh, okay. No. Oh. It was all kind of... But we may get... I don't know if that was because they didn't have the the, the time... You know, like they maybe they only had a and window. And all the other artists are on other labels. Oh yeah, but that that was neither here. There was a lot of competition. Yeah. And I remember, like Barbara Streisand, she, there was a lot of competition, and she won, if you will. Uh, I've got a crush on you. Mm. That song, right? Okay. And there's a great thing on that one. If you listen to the record, she, she, to foster the illusion that they were literally standing next to one another when they were singing, she goes, "I've got a crush on you, Francis." You know, like they're standing next to each other. So when we got done with most of the recording, uh, Frank, you know, had a couple of walls probably out in Palm Springs. So Phil and one of the capital engineers uh, at the time, Charlie Picari, they drove out to to Palm Springs with a little recorder and say, Frank, Frank, come on, play with it, work with us here. We got to have you sing. Barbara, right? <laughs> Fuck no, I'm not singing Barbara. Thank you. So we took him saying Barbara. Oh no! Oh, and we fantastic. pitched it and stretched it and flew it in. And so he says Barbara. And, and, and I've got a crush on you. Barbara Good is God. on the record. Good grief! I've got to check yeah. this record out because I just didn't realize that reasonably high technology for 1991, yeah. right? My God! But. Uh, yeah, there there was some wacky stuff that went up. But like I say, we didn't really do any of the uh, duet people. Mm. They were all done over Ednet. Ah, you know, okay. like Bono was in Dublin and uh, people were in New York or wherever the hell they were. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't realize that. Though, that yeah, and I know, you know, I Phil it. Ramone was always on the cutting edge. Mm. I mean, he would always, he was an amazing guy, mm. an amazing guy. I first met... Phil Ramone in 1964. Good grief. Because growing up in Rochester, New York, there's the Eastman School of Music, world-renowned music school there, and they had a summer camp for arrangers, at the end of which they would have the arrangers holiday. They'd have a series of performances where you'd get to hear all the writing of these guys who were at the... And it was amazing, right? And they would be recording it, strangely enough. And as I told you earlier, I was... Bitten by the bug. I, this is I was probably fourteen then, and uh, I see this guy, you know, up there moving the microphones around the around the band. Mm. You know, it's a big band and orchestra and stuff. And you know, I went to a number of these things. I got to find out who that guy. I got to, you know, because I I want to do that. I, I would love yeah. to to learn more of that. And it was <clears throat> this guy named Phil Ramone. Right. Then, that was amazing, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I did I didn't register, didn't mean anything to me that name or anything. But then I met him, probably 10, 15 years later, and the you legend know, was born. The legend is born. Yeah, A and R recording in New York. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's the R. 
Yes. Oh, really? I did not know that. Right. Oh, that is like it's like A and M here. It took me a long time to find <laughs> out. <who that> was. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Look, where do we go from here? Because this is just amazing. Uh, any stories about Carly Simon? Well, my one story about Carly Simon is I was working on a record with her. I mean, I shouldn't say with her. Hmm. I was working on a record of hers. She was physically not there. And what were we doing? We were recording John Travolta. Ah, okay. It says it on my notes. I just found it. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and John Travolta was expecting her to be there. So he brings in this, like, you know, ridiculously expensive, beautiful, long stem dozen roses uh-huh. from probably the best florist in Beverly Hills and blah, blah, blah. She wasn't there. So we got him to do his thing, which was, you know, harmonize on a couple of mm. pre-recorded tracks of, up with her, or with her voice, that is. Mm-hmm. And he leaves. And <laughs> the day before, I had been a part of a, uh, a, a shoot for a commercial at Capitol and where they used the recording studio and, you know, brought these actors in and staged them as if they were performers in, in doing a session it was for lucky strike or something oh, right and oh, in the, good, in the shot product, yes. in the shot they had me in the control room you know like either you know patching it a oh, patch doing cord stuff. Or, you know you know, <laughs> you know that, that, totally stupid but the girl who was the uh director or coordinator of the shoot was very hot mm. and <laughs> so i arranged you know, at, you know, it was the next day after the shoot that I had made. You know, I got her number or something. Mm-hmm. And my bet. And it, it, <laughs> but at the end of, of the Carly Simon thing, uh, there were these left behind dozen roses. Oh, there we go. Because okay. he forgot them, right? <laughs> so I had one of the runners take her over to the hotel that this girl was staying at. Yeah. So I got over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the next day, <laughs> Travolta's. Or his people, or somebody called saying, "Oh, can we? We forgot those roses. Can we get?" Oh. I said, I, "I think the housekeeping people I threw think them out. They've wilted." Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Swing and a mess. You're too late. Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> but I got some use out of them anyway. Yeah. All right. Now I'm going to jump on you with the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson. Oh man. Now this has got to be good. Well, he he was quite amazing. But I, the first, I think maybe the only time I got to work. Well, no, there was a couple of times. Remember, there was a, they had a hit with a song called Kokomo. Yes. And we were working on a movie, uh, Tequila Sunrise. Yep. That was the name of the movie. And Kokomo was in the soundtrack already of this movie. And the Beach Boys were trying desperately, maybe it was the label, maybe, I don't know. But they had another song that they wanted to finish, hurry up and get recorded and, and hopefully also get it on the soundtrack album of this movie that looked like it was, you know, gold, a gold mine. They were, mm. Their career was kind of in a slump at that moment. Can you give me a date on this? Mid-80s. Okay. Mid-80s. That's as close as I could guess. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> uh, we, we could grab our phones and get IMDb and figure out the date The, the audience would no doubt be phoning us in anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, they were uh, they were tough to work with, and this was back when uh, Brian was in the care of that guy, Doctor oh, Landy. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. And uh, it, it was there was a dynamic where they nobody could stand to be in the room with Mike Love. You know, you know, all bands go through that yes, period right, well. where they're, you know they're all angry at each other or certain 
camps form and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that wasn't a particularly great thing. And I did, we did, the song was called Don't Fight the Sea. It did not make that record. But some years later, I saw it on some compilation. Oh, really? Yeah. So yeah. It, it did see the light of day at some point. Yeah. Uh, but I got to work on one of Brian's solo records, okay? And, I mean, it's not surprising probably to anybody that, that he was among the brightest and the most mm-hmm. brilliant musical guys of, of American pop music. And certainly in that band, he was musically the leader. Mm. Even in his most unavailable, you know, philosophically or emotionally or intellectually, you know, he was... Under the care of Dr. Landy and whatever the period of that of, of his life that was. Anyway, so when he was under whatever medication he was on with Dr. Landy, if he drank Perrier, it would excite it and he'd get a buzz. Oh my God. So he was constantly drinking, drinking Perrier, Perrier. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, so when you're recording him singing, there was a lot of belching and burping going on. <laughs> Oh, it was so funny. But he was still a, an incredible talent. And, so you've but, had this amazing fucking career, haven't you? I mean, well, Christ. yeah. I mean, I, and, and among the, the for, most fortunate things, I mean, you know, having been a musician, I think people liked being around a guy who could contribute musically. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just, you know, a lump on a, a log. I just got a phone call the other day with a, from a guy who I used to work with Again, a million years ago, Jimmy Messina. Oh, right, yes. And how I met him? Now, I when I first started at Sunset Sound, I was a tech, you know, like working in the shop and repairing mm-hmm. stuff and whatnot. Because, again, in my early years with my brother, I learned about electronics and all that, as you know, almost simultaneous with the music. So I'm working in the shop while Jimmy's making a record, and in the other room, I hear him going over and over and over again in the same freaking eight bar trying to get out of a solo and at the end of the solo it modulates right and you know when you get you know sometimes when you're working on something and it doesn't matter what it is music or anything you know you get myopic and you you have a brain freeze and you can't see something that somebody does has a little distance can see so i i leave the shop and i go into the control do you mind if I say something? Do mind you know? if I? Say... And how old are you? <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm okay. in my thirties. Oh, you're mature. Point. Okay, but I, I'm, I'm not on his session. He doesn't know me. <laughs> and I said, if you if you you know <laughs> the downbeat of the second bar in this transition, if you made that a half step up, I wish everybody could see you pointing your fingers and no, but I'm moving imaginary faders. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm specifying that if you raise this one note at the beginning of the second bar. The transition will work because it was because it was modulating in the middle of this line that he was playing. Oh, okay. So I go, man. And he did it. It solved his problem. Good God. But, you know, here's some asshole who comes out from the shop. You know, not who the fuck is this guy? You know? And he oh, it worked. It worked. Well, thank you very so, much. So, you know, I'm saying if you have, if you can contribute musically a lot of times. Gotcha. That's the point. There, there's, yeah. A, yeah. there's a room for you at the table, mm-hmm. if you will. And I was always fortunate in that way to have uh, uh, a few doors open because I was musical do as you have, well. Do you have perfect pitch? I have a much better thing. 
I have relative perfect pitch. Okay, you have to explain that to everybody. Relative perfect pitch means once once I hear one note, I can give you every other possible note in tune uh. given to that. But having perfect pitch, like when you hear, uh, okay, having perfect pitch is a, is a curse. I know, I've heard. Uh, yes. Because, okay, you think A is always 440. Well, no. In, in Europe, A is 444. So everything can be is going to be painfully sharp if you hear a recording from over there. When I was in music school, let's say you were having symphony class, there'd be a bunch of assigned pieces, and they're all in specific keys. And if you have perfect pitch, when we drop the needle on the record, you'd say, well, that's, that's D natural. There was only one thing we were assigned that's in D, so it's got to be this, this, mm-hmm. that. So to fuck with those people, they'd very speed the turntable a little oh, bit. Wow, okay. you know. So watch well, the strobe slightly. Yeah. So is it? Well, we didn't have anything in C sharp. <coughs> what? Well, I have no idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they they'd mess with you that way. But when you're doing, if you're making records for a living mm. and you're overdubbing, you know you don't know what that piano was tuned to or this oh, track was yeah. tuned to. You yeah. gotta have the ears. Okay. Well. Okay. That's why tuners are kind of a joke, I think. Okay. Unless you can, you know, offset the tuner to the track. Oh, I see what you're saying. You need to be able to hear what is uh, the thing. You know, now that I've found myself a mastering engineer and I can no longer do anything about stuff that's out of tune, sometimes it drives me freaking nuts. That was my very next question, which you just answered. I I, I was (laughs) mastering a, a great record recently. I mean, just a spectacular amount of musicianship on it and the piano in the solo is in tune mm. but the the piano when it plays the melody is about seven cents sharp mm. drives me around the bend mm. just drives me nuts and you know that it's always either done at two different studios mm. or on two different days Oh, is that well, when I hear you throwing things against the wall? That's exactly right. Yes, because <laughs> Pete's studio is right next door to my studio. <laughs> that's true, and the walls aren't that thick, are they? <laughs> i got to thank you for coming and doing this for us today, because I think you've just um, you've just told people a lot, a lot of stories, which they've never right. heard before. Yeah, well, I'll and take I'm all sure the, you've got more. I'll we take all the credit, one. but none of the blame. No, no, right. No, no, that's what we all do, dear. <laughs> Pete, thank you. Thank you, man. We're shaking hands. We're shaking hands. This was a wonderful time on the couch, live, or almost live, from After Master Studios. I've got a crush on you, sweetie pie. All the day and night time Hear me sigh I never had the least notion That I could fall with So much emotion You have been listening to the baritone voice of revered veteran of audio recording and mastering, Pete Dell. Without his incisive and precise work, we would not be enjoying the pop, rock and jazz and classical recordings that we all treasure today. We learn just how much goes into making a perfect record. Thank you, Pete. That was amazing. This has been Art of Rock. 
a production of Pantheon Podcasts. I am online at koshdesign.blogspot.com and you can find me on Facebook at Kosh Art. From the couch in the Aftermaster main studio in Hollywood, this is Kosh. of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Art of Rock is written by Kosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. Old quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology.